Would you please stand with me as we read the Lord's word taken today from Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 through 17. Again, we are picking up where we left off last week. Again, looking at only verses 12 and 13. Again, this is the Lord's word. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Amen. Please be seated, friends. We go to the Lord and ask for his blessing. Again, our Father, we thank you for your word and pray that your blessing be upon your servant now, that I will handle your word faithfully, clearly, and we pray that you would keep the evil one from stealing away the seed of the gospel or from um, having things be heard that aren't said. And we pray, Father, that you would bless your word so that your people are encouraged and strengthened, that we would be um, blessed uh, as a result of now listening to you. Thank you again for your many kindnesses to us. We pray that you would cause the kingdom of Satan great injury. Oh, Father, I do pray this and ask that uh, now you would come and be present by your spirit to help the, the little children and to help those of us who are older and growing tired. Strengthen us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, we want to pick up today... Um, where we left off last week. And I want you to recall that the apostle in this section has written concerning the Christian and his deeds, what he is supposed to put off and what he is supposed to put on. Uh, And the reason we do this is because of what we are. We are new creatures in Christ. Um, In Christ, we have been redeemed. In Christ, we have been circumcised. In Christ, we have been baptized. We've been washed. We are these new creatures now. And Christ is renewing us. He is renovating us. He is taking what was old, the old self, and he is now changing us into his image. He says in verse 11, This is a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And so, friends, we don't, gauge our worthiness before the Lord based upon our pasts, our pedigrees, the present time, because before the Lord, we were all wretched sinners. We were dead in our sins, deserving the wrath and curse of God. And yet in Christ now, we have this hope. We have this hope. Christ is all. He is the supreme one. He is the one who has redeemed his people, and he alone is sufficient. He alone is enough to make us right with the Father. This is good news. This is why it is such a wonderful thing to read what the Apostle wrote about, as we looked at last week, when he says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, 
Now think of this. No one, no one, not, not me, not you, no one has any room to boast before the Lord because, as the apostle writes, we were chosen. He says this in 1 Corinthians, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. We are holy We are beloved, not loved because we've been made holy in Christ, but because we are loved, we have been made holy. How far back does the Lord's love go for us? According to the scriptures, even before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So again, here, we see that this is a wonderful plan and purpose of God that he has, who chose for himself a people who were not his people, a people who were deserving of wrath and who were unworthy, separated from God, and he takes us, sacrificing his son, fulfilling the just demands of his law. He atones for our sins, imputes the righteousness of Christ to us, and he takes a people who were not his people, and he makes them his people. This is an astounding thought. That's why I think that video that I watched on YouTube blew my mind. Is that here I am, a goyim, a Gentile, of English, Scandinavian, European descent, And I know the Messiah. How can it be? How can it be that he would do this for me? A people, a person who knew no mercy, who has now received mercy. A person who was very distant and far away from God and had no interest in the things of the Lord. And as a 14-year-old, he opened my eyes and the voice of the shepherd said, Come. And I came having no interest in him. And he saved me, and he put within me a new heart. What then is the response? What is the only appropriate response to such kindness? This is the question. How do we respond to such love? We respond, my friends, by putting on the mind of Christ. And that's where we stay today. We respond by putting on the mind of Christ. Listen to what he says in the second half of B and 13a. He says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Here, the apostle has given another command. Previously, up to this point, he has given several commands, putting it in the imperative case. Um, He's given commands to put off, to lay aside, put to death the members of your flesh. Lay aside these things, this abusive speech and those things. This time he gives a command, a positive command, saying this, put on, put on. It's a verb. It's to put on, like clothing, to be furnished with anything, adorned with a virtue as if clothed with a garment, says there. He has said to them already that they have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now he is telling them what they should put on, 
what virtues or characteristics they should adorn themselves with, or what character they should cultivate and nurture. Why do I say it like cultivate and nurture? And this is where I suppose I'm a bit nuts. Um, I wrestle with these things. How do we put on these things? What is the Christian's responsibility? What aspect am I supposed to be involved in my sanctification? Right? If you turn with me, and we're going to bounce a little bit here, uh, back to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 24, and I'd like you to listen. Again, keep one finger in Colossians 3, um, and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 24. And if you can remember what we've been reading through Colossians 3, and now listen to Galatians 5 and what I'm reading, and I want you to listen to the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to what the apostle says, and I hope what you'll recognize is that, boy, there's sure a lot of overlap between Colossians 3 and Galatians chapter 5. This is what I'm hoping you're going to see. Again, I'm in verse 16 of Galatians 5, and I'll read through 24. Listen to what the apostle writes to the churches in Galatia. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. So that's not an entire list, but it's things like these. Of which, he says, I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, the flesh with its passions and desires. You'll notice that the deeds of the flesh, these are things that we did prior to coming to know the Lord. Being delivered, we no longer live in this manner. Not that we don't occasionally visit those places. We shouldn't, but we do. We struggle with the flesh. We were guilty of these things. We never even had to try or to plan to do them. They just kind of burbled out of our hearts naturally. That's the way we were prior to coming to Christ, while we were dead in our flesh. But you'll notice that in verses 22 and 23, that the fruit of the Spirit is what the Spirit produces in the life of a believer. It is the Spirit of God who is given the credit for the fruit that is produced in the believer. And I want you to notice, as I've already mentioned uh, briefly, is that there is tremendous overlap of what the fruit of the Spirit is and what the clothing that the Christian is supposed to put on is described. So these words, love, kindness, gentleness, patience, peace. In one passage, we're told to walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And in the other, in Colossians, we are told to put on, put on these virtues. Um, So in one, we're told, put them on, and in the other, we're told, it's the fruit of the Spirit. My question is, which is it? Which is it? 
Is it you putting it on or is it the spirit of God producing it in you? What's the answer? Yes. Yes. What does it look uh, look like to put on this clothing? What does it entail? In this matter, uh, we are prone to go to one of two directions, and both of these directions would be an error. The first error is the error of self-reliance, uh, self-reliant activity. You've heard the phrase, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Have you ever tried that? <laughs> If anyone can do that, I suppose that they are in a position that where they could boast. The problem is, is you can't do it. And, and what it does is, is it, it, it provides and, and gives a man or woman confidence in their flesh. It, it creates a pride and a meanness and intolerance of those who don't measure up to you. Think of the Pharisees. That's one error. I can do this myself with just enough discipline and self-will I can accomplish the things of God in my flesh. It's the very thing that the apostle warns them about at the end of chapter 2 in the same epistle. This is a terrible thing. The other error, however, would be the error of passivity. And it looks or sounds something like this. Well, I'm just kind of waiting for the Holy Spirit to make me feel bad so I will not want to sin anymore. Well, you're watching things you shouldn't be watching. Yeah, but, you know, I just don't feel convicted. So until I feel convicted, I won't, I won't be concerned about my sin. It's, it's a problem. It's a problem because we're relying on our feelings to direct us rather than the word of God. Both errors. I'll pick myself up by my bootstraps and I'll just sit here and wait for an external motion of the Holy Spirit upon me before I'm going to do what is right. Um, Turn with me, please, to Philippians chapter 2, where we see a a wonderful blend here. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. We will get into this in Sunday school, eventually. Um, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is telling the Philippians that they are supposed to work out their salvation. The interesting thing in the, in the Greek, this work out your salvation um, is a different word in the Greek for work than it is for the English word work in the Greek. So when Paul is saying work out your salvation, he is saying Do something from which something results. And the idea would be to work out your salvation to the finish. If you're a marathon runner, what do you do? You train and you run and you just continue. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, I buffet my body. I train myself so that I don't make myself disqualified. I compete by the rules. Here, work out your salvation. Do that from which something results. Because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Both times in the Greek, the idea there is God is working. That's the word that we get our word energy from. That is, he does work. He affects a change. You are called to work out your salvation to the finish. Stay the course of salvation as God is at work in you. As God is energizing you to that end. 
The idea, the picture here for the Christian, and I'm asking the question, which is it? Is it the fruit of the Spirit in me, or am I supposed to clothe myself? Am I supposed to pick myself up by the bootstraps? Is that what the Lord is instructing? No. Am I supposed to sit by and do nothing in regard to my flesh? I'm supposed to just sit and wait passively until God makes my arm move and turns my eyes away? No. It's both. It's both. The putting on, the putting on is not an effort, my friends, that you and I can do apart from the Lord. Regeneration, faith, and justification, these are gifts, these are graces of God that he bestows upon his chosen ones. But our sanctification is a cooperation with the Spirit of God who now is at work in the believer. Question 77 of the larger catechism speaks of grace being infused into the believer and and it enables the believer to put off, to put off that sin. Put away those things that are tripping you up. Put away those things that, that, that resemble the old man and put on those things that now resemble the new image, the image of God. How do you do this? How do we take on the disposition of our Savior? How is it that anyone can say that they've, they've, they've developed a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience? How do we bear with one another and forgive each other? And, and eventually, how do we love one another? My friends, it starts with realizing that you can't do it in the natural man. My biggest fear is that when I stand up and preach that you're going to hear me say, stop being bad people and just start being good people. That's not the gospel and that's not the message of the scriptures. We are not here to make you more sanctimonious sinners. We're not here to make anyone more sanctimonious in their sinfulness. Worst thing in the world would be for you to remain in your flesh and to think I've disciplined myself now. Now God's got to love me. Not going to happen, friends. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 15. And again, listen to what the Lord says using the Apostle Paul. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward, toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot please God. Cannot. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Remember, he's writing to Christians in Rome. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, 
you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit of God brings life. My friends, a man or a woman must be born again, born from above. Without the Spirit, you cannot put on the mind of Christ. So when you hear the apostle, when you hear, hear me read the apostle's words, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. When you hear me saying this, he is writing to Christians, he is writing to those who are new men, new women, and dwelt by the Spirit of God, and he is calling them, now become what you are. Become what you are. In the spirit that is walking in the spirit, then we work and we cultivate, we nurture, weeding and feeding the things of God in our lives. So I like to think of the farmer. The farmer has his field, the snow has melted off, and he looks at it and says, I better get to work. He goes out there with his tractors, he goes out there with his shovel, his spit excuse me, his spade, he goes out there and he breaks soil, he turns the soil, and what does he do? He pulls weeds, he he fertilizes, he scatters seed, he makes everything, all the conditions, um, 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 favorable towards growth. What can't he do? He can't actually make anything grow. Can he? He can't make it grow. He doesn't have the power to say to the corn, grow. He can't do it. He simply weeds and feeds. He he cultivates, he nurtures a right atmosphere for things to take place. We are supposed to weed out, according to Galatians 5, according to Colossians 3, 5 through 11, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I don't want to make provision for them. We want to choke them out. We want to starve those weeds and not make it possible for them to grow. That's the Christian's mindset I get away from them. I don't go there. I don't go near her corner. I don't go to the bar. I don't visit the website. I don't bring it up. I don't feed it. I don't fan it into a flame. I don't encourage and entice it. But I run away from sin. That's the Christian's attitude. That's what it should be. And by the way, when the world mocks you as being a goody two-shoe, turn a deaf ear towards it. Because we've been redeemed by the blood of our Savior and he calls us to lay these things aside. Put them away from you. Get away from them. They're death. That's what they are. They're death. So I weed out those things and I feed. I nurture and I cultivate and encourage what the Spirit in his word tells me is good. So as as, as a young man, MTV is coming on. MTV is a big thing. Some of you are smiling. Right? We, we watch the videos. 
And as a young man, a young Christian with MTV out there and, and music videos are coming on and they have some pretty racy things on there and you go, well, well, I don't feel bad, you know, watching this. I'm a very mature and very grown-up person. I can watch what I want on television. And then you come across the scriptures which says, set no unwholesome thing before your eyes. Or Job, I have, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a, at a, at a maiden, at a young woman. Do I wait until I feel something bad? Or do I listen to the word of God and say, I don't think the Lord wants me watching this. I don't think the Lord wants me drinking anymore. I don't think the Lord wants me saying this. I don't think the Lord wants me walking by her corner. You see this? How does the spirit talk to us? He speaks to us in his word. You have eyes? You have ears? Read the word. What does the Lord want from you? Uh, uh. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. That's what he says. How should you view those things? As bad. Put them to death. Don't give your body to those things. And then you encourage the things that the Lord tells us in his word that are good. In his word, those things that are pleasing to him, those are the things I pour my effort into doing. As a young man coming out of an antinomian, um, being, coming to faith in an antinomian church, and I'm thankful for that congregation, but I'm telling you, they left me floundering. Because they couldn't tell me, well, what does the Lord want? Ah, love? That's not especially helpful to a ninth grade guy. What are you looking at? What are you reading? What are you spending your time doing? What are you nurturing? What are you feeding? This is what the Lord says. And for me, I don't know about you, but for me, it was a real conundrum. Lord, what do you want? I want to obey you. You say, if I love you, I'm going to keep your command. I just don't know. I'm not in the habit of murdering people, so I'm not so concerned about that one. But there's a whole other, lot of other things that I'm really concerned about. And we seem to miss this going off in one of two directions. The legalistic approach, I'm going to do this, and, and now look at me, and everyone's going to be impressed with me, or I'm going to be the passive dote sitting there going, I don't know. What does the Lord want? How does he do this? How does he produce this? It's like the farmer. You get out there, you starve the things that are bad, you feed the things that are good, you do the things he says in his word, and you struggle, Christian, you struggle. That's, the, that's what you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You struggle with it. Listen, if you're not struggling with sin, you're dead and in heaven, or you've never been born again. Because the fact that you struggle with sin is evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in you. I know we get discouraged when we struggle. And I understand that, and I get it. But at the same time, we ought to be rejoicing because that struggling is an indication that the Lord is working there in your life. And the fact that you struggle is a constant reminder that you need Jesus Christ and you need his grace. 
So when the apostle says here, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, I go, how do I change my heart? How do I do this? We're going to get into it. In Christ, in Christ, what are you to put on? He says, put on a heart of compassion. That is, that we must put on mercy, pity, or compassion. It is not merely showing compassion, giving a guy a few bucks. Of course, and we'll see this in a moment, uh, this should not be ruled out. But putting on a heart of compassion, a heart of of pity or mercy, uh, a compassion that comes from deep within, comes from the heart. Or in the Greek, more interesting, more picturesque, comes from the bowels or the intestines. It's in that gut place where you go, oh, you feel it for somebody. You have this heart of compassion for somebody. A compassion that is seated and comes from deep within a person. Consider the pity of the Lord. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Listen to Romans 9, 15, and 16. He says to uh, to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. He has compassion for us. My friends, he looked upon us with this compassion. He looked upon the sinner in pity, and from this, Christ came into this world to redeem us. So how do we put this on as believers How do we nurture something like this? We start, friends, by remembering what we were, what we deserved, and what Christ did for us instead of giving us what we deserved. It starts with the understanding of that that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's where the heart of compassion starts. I caught myself this week. I'm in some of these, um, I I get these political threads shot past my phone, and so my phone chirps. Oftentimes I'll have to turn my phone off or set it to silent or something. Uh, this week uh, my phone was chirping and there was outrage, and rightly so, over uh, among Republicans over drag shows for children. I figured as soon as I said drag shows, I would grab your attention again. Drag shows for children, does it, does it cause you outrage? It causes me outrage, it really does. And I shared my outrage on that, and then I saw a list of, of people chiming in on what wicked people these were and what evil things. And then I was quickly reminded at that moment, do you remember what you once were? Do you remember what you once deserved? And do you ever stop to think what you would have been had Jesus Christ not stopped you and gotten a hold of you? You ever think about that, friends? Do you think what you could have been, what you would have been, where you would be right now? And as I I saw those messages, I eventually had to chime back in and say, what a gracious Savior Jesus Christ is. Who knows what I would have been were it not for the grace of God in Christ. And instead of wishing harm on them, which initially you do, you want to say they, they deserve hell. The truth of the matter is, is I did too. And then you begin to feel pity for them. And you see that they're acting out of a heart that is lost and separated from God. I'm not condoning that sin. Don't hear me say that. They need to repent. 
and they can be forgiven. Such were some of you, said Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. And instead of wishing hellfire on them, you now pray that the Lord would deliver them and set them free from their sin, which is going to reap a harvest. Put on a heart of compassion. Put on kindness, he says, which overlaps with compassion. Those who have tasted of the grace of God and his compassion must put on kindness. J. Adams says that kindness is compassion in action. We have the parable in Luke 10 of the Good Samaritan. Remember, the Samaritan, unlike the priest and the Levite, though himself the Samaritan was considered a half-breed by the Jews, he comes upon the man who was stripped and beaten by robbers and left half-dead. Jesus tells us that when he saw him, the Samaritan saw this man, he felt compassion. Um, And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, poured oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. What a picture of what Jesus Christ has done. The compassion, the kindness that he demonstrates towards us. Paul says in Romans 2.4, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? He did not merely feel something deep for us and sit in heaven and go, Welp, there's nothing I can do about these poor saps. But a body he makes for me, and he sends me into this world in order that I might redeem those poor saps. That's what Jesus Christ did. He demonstrated, demonstrated a kindness that overflowed from compassion. Paul says, put on humility. This humility is having a deep sense of one's moral littleness, its modesty, lowliness of mind. One commentator said, according to the entire context, it is a modest self-appraisal in relation to one's neighbors, especially to fellow believers. In Philippians chapter 2, a passage we are well familiar with, verses 3 through 8, we see this, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Put on a mindset of humility. It is because of this, uh, because this was our Lord's mindset toward us, that we are called to put on the same mindset towards one another. He says, put on gentleness. By the way, these are the mindset. This is the mindset. This is the character that Paul is calling on us to put on because we're new creatures. These things are most typified and most readily seen in Jesus Christ. You see, he's making us into his image. We need to work the soil, cultivate these things. Gentleness is meekness. It's not to be confused with weakness, a person who collapses before every breeze. This is, this gentleness is submissiveness under provocation, the willingness rather to suffer injury 
than to inflict it. Listen to these two examples. Jesus was arrested in the garden. Peter tries to lob the head off and ends up striking the ear of Malchus. Jesus says, do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? What strength, what power, what an arsenal at his disposal. And he chose not to use it. Or, as Peter says, that he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Here he is, God, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, deity, strength unparalleled, and was willing rather to suffer in our stead and die as the sacrificial lamb. That's gentleness. That's meekness. We must put these things on. We must put on patience, long-suffering, being willing to take the long view in the face of human frailty, Adams again says it's a willingness to do things by God's timetable. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What did he do? He bore and has bore long and hard for the sake of his people that he would not lose a single one of his people. Put on patience. Bear with one another, he says. Or to put up with one another. To bear with each other. Their opinions and actions. Jesus said, listen to this. In Matthew 17, 17. You unbelieving and perverted generation. How long shall I put up with you? Unbelieving and perverted. James and John, the sons of thunder. Jesus, you want us to call down fire and cook these cats? You don't know what spirit you're of. I haven't come to destroy and to bring judgment. I've come rather to save. Bearing with one another. How long has the Lord put up with you? How long has the Lord put up with me? This is how we're supposed to approach one another. Taking on the mind of Christ. And finally, at least for today. He says where we are to forgive each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Do you have a complaint against someone? Then we deal with it, we get it resolved, and we forgive the matter. We don't hold on to it, we don't bring it up. Rather, we grant forgiveness and pardon. We don't exact penalty of one another. Why? Very plain. Because our Lord has forgiven us. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. He doesn't say not to deal with sin, but to forgive it once it is dealt with, because this is what Jesus Christ did for you. All of these, he says, put these on as as the Lord's people. The heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing and forgiving one another. These are the things that are not typical of the world. They are not of the flesh These are things that are of the new man, the new creature in Christ. What what was typical of the world of the flesh was greed and idolatry, sensuality, envy, jealousy, disputes, dissensions. That was the old man. 
These things that he tells us to put on should be typical of the Christian. They should be characteristic of the child of God who is being renovated into the image of his Savior. As the Lord himself is this way, so ought we, my friends, be who have been chosen to bear his image. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, again for your word and pray that you would work in our lives and in our hearts, that you would renovate us more and more, that we would bear in our bodies a righteousness, a holiness, a godliness that is in line with what we are now in Christ and in what um, he is making us. We ask for your help that we would fight against our flesh and say no to it. We pray for your help that you would help us, Lord, to feed and encourage those things which are right and that we would enter into this struggle the struggle against our flesh, which our desires oftentimes are so strong and overwhelming. But we know that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We pray, Father, that you would hold us close to yourself and that we would fight for one another, that we would fight, Lord, to see each other as we stand before you on that judgment day. Grant us your grace and blessing, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.